Welcome to Classic 4x4, the podcast for and by classic four-wheel drive enthusiasts. I'm your host, Chris Piccone, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at classic4x4podcast. And you could follow my trials, tribulations, and antics of collecting and restoring classic four-wheel drives at Overland by the Sea. So the name of the game here is to get to the, the voltage and pack capacity that's required to run your system and get you the mileage that you want without just going crazy. We talk a lot about engine swaps, and when we talk about engine swaps, we usually are talking about an LS or a Cummins 12-valve or an R2.8, and it's usually a diesel or a high-performance gas engine swap. But one of the things we've talked about on the Classic 4x4 podcast in the past is, and we talked about it with Caleb Jacobs, you know, we just scratched the service with Caleb on his episode was EV conversion. So I went down a rabbit hole. I'm obsessed with EV conversions. I think it's the coolest thing in the face of the earth. So I said, let me find somebody that can talk intelligently about EV conversions and those powertrain swaps. So today uh, we're very fortunate to have Nate Bond, who's the shop manager from Proper EV. What's up, Nate? Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me. No, I appreciate your time and talking to our listeners about uh, the EV conversion process and and how that works and the components that are involved uh, from start to finish. Uh, and for those of you out there that aren't familiar with Proper EV, you got to follow them on all the social channels. Uh, their handle is at Proper EV. Check them out online propersolutionsgroup.com. They're located in New Milford, Connecticut. So if you're around, stop by uh, and take a look at some of their cool work. Uh, I mean, you guys are are doing some really interesting EV conversions. And one of the things that actually drew me to having this conversation today and reaching out to you is your first truck that you guys did was a 63 Ford Econoline pickup, which is a relatively rare truck in the first place. But what was unique about that is a lot of the EV conversion companies, they're just slapping them in Volkswagens. They're easy, right? I mean, and that was, there were some conversations I was having where that was the only options like, you know, of people I could talk to, but I really wanted to have a conversation with somebody that's done a truck. And your first proof of concept was a 63 Ford Econoline pickup. And that's what really what drew me to, to um, reaching out to you. And, and I'm glad you got back to me and I'm glad we're here having this conversation today. So, you know, tell us about not only yourself, but also uh, as the shop manager, you run the, along with the owner, Mike, you run the shop and, and the EV conversion process. But tell us about where did proper EV come from? I know it was originally a restoration shop and then you guys started focusing on EV. You know, tell us your story. All right. So I'll start with the shop first, I guess. Uh, so Mike, um, he's the owner. He he did a bunch of print work, you know, COVID totally nixed his business. He said, you know, I'd like to relax, change pace, do something different. You know, he had a really great idea. Hey, I'd like to take classic cars and I'd like to convert them to EV. You know, I've seen them in Europe. I've seen them in California. You know, I think this is a great thing to bring to the East Coast. So like you had mentioned, uh, he purchased an existing restoration shop um, as a place to start, you know, to looking for the right personnel, the right equipment, uh, placed with a name already established. So from there, you know, he went about gathering staff, doing paperwork. Um, We are a used car dealership as well, you know, so we're do some full service stuff in the beginning. And then 
After that, you know, I guess I pop into the equation about two, three months after the initial opening of proper, which is September 2020. Um, so a little bit about myself. Uh, I've done some form or another of wrench turning for for most of my life. But, you know, I went to tech school. I did big name restoration work for a while, um, some other small things. And then I found my way here down to proper. Um, so like you said, I handle the day to day, you know, everything that involves Going in and out, I would say for the most part, um, we are primarily focused on the experience of everything. You know, we don't want to be a mass shop. We don't want 27 cars in the shop. You know, every one of these cars has a story and we really just want to continue telling it. Um, you know, these vehicles have been around, you know, 40, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. And there's no reason why they shouldn't be around for 100 more. So it's, you know, we feel like it's our job to to keep these things going. And, you know, this is just one way to do it. I know it's not for everybody and some people are going to hate this. But, you know, once you see what it can do and, and the, the type of power and, and options that you can get, I mean, it's it's crazy and it's it's only going to get bigger. I love that it's all about the preservation for you guys. I, I find that interesting. We were talking in the pre-interview and you use that term several times. And I think you mentioned in the pre-interview that if a guy walked in with a, a Ford was a GT 40, right. You know, that was new, clean and, and beautiful. You'd probably tell him that nah, it's not something we're interested in. It's more so, you know, the guy that walks in with the truck or the car that needs a restoration and the powertrain's pretty shot that is at the end of its life. And you guys give it that new life and preserve it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our shop truck is really a perfect example of what, what you're just talking about. You know, we, we have two Econoline pickups. We have one that is, is beautiful, stripped down primer, immaculate. And we went out and we got a second one that was bondoed and shaved to look like a show truck put on wheels, you know, super clean white. And, you know, what, what better thing to do to this, you know, had a 144 straight six, 90 horsepower, three on the tree, not very powerful. It's certainly not keeping up with today's traffic. You know, you right outside our shop, you know, you, you bang a right and people are going 50 miles an hour. So, you know, so, you know, this is a great test bed. Let's figure this out. Nobody has done this before in something like this. It's super different. So we ended up linking with some guys from California and we took a look at the truck. We figured out what they had to offer and, and we kind of developed a plan, you know, to use some Hyper 9, which is a brand new motor and controller and some Tesla battery modules. You know, and we kind of got our shipment from them and set about, you know, taking this vehicle and trying to figure out how do we retain the spirit, the classicness, the, the head turner, if you will, the thing that's going to make people stop and just update everything else. You know, so the, the truck happens to be very unique uh, in the fact that, like most vehicles, it has a gas tank, you know, near the rear end underneath the back of the bed, but also has a 165 pound counterweight back there. Uh, pre like 63 early trucks, like 61, uh, you slam on the brakes really hard. They don't have the counterweight back there and they'll just do a nosedive. <laughs> so I, ironically enough, the truck actually was perfect to put batteries in it between the gas tank and a 165 pound counterweight. Oh, all right, you know, we can throw three, 400 pounds right there, no problem. So other than cutting a hole in the bed and building the framework to put the battery box and the cage and everything in, which you can see a lot of that on our Instagram, if anybody's curious. Other than that, it's totally original. Original rear end, original drive shaft, original three on the tree, 
the Hyper 9, we we made brand new motor mounts in the same mocked up outrigger style as as the Econoline originally had. The motor goes right there. You know, they have the doghouse between the front seats that you lift up. That way you mm-hmm. can take a look at the motor, service it, all that. Everything fits in there just as is. Use the original radiator support, repurpose that for our coolers. You know, put a couple of shelves in there to put the chargers, the DC to DC, everything else. But if you walk up to the truck, besides seeing a piece of plexiglass on the bed, you're not even going to know that it's electric. You know, we have people or, all the time. Or that when look you're at driving it. down the road, right. uh, you know, you don't hear the engine, the little putter oh. of the engine. You just hear <sighs> yep. just <laughs> a little a bit of a word. Yep. Oh, people are blown away. You know, a lot of guys, they see it and, you know, they think we're going to start, you know, fire it up and there's going to be like the puff of blue smoke and the and then you just see their jaw drop when you just kind of back up and roll away dead silent. You know, the car's on nice looking wheels. It's dropped a little bit. It's totally shaved. No body lines. You know, so people are like, holy, that's crazy, man. What the heck? You know, it's a real conversation starter. That's super cool. So you kind of alluded to it, but I think, uh, you know, one thing that I find very interesting and I'm, I want to talk a lot more about is the process, right? So mm-hmm. this is a relatively, you know, new within the past decade type of business in general. You know, everybody obviously has a different process, but what's the proper process, right? To use, uh, kind of a play on words there. Say, you know, me, Chris Piccone rolls into proper today with a CJ7, an 81 CJ7 that has a T176 four-speed transmission married to uh, or mated to a, a Dana 300 transfer case. Driveline's all good. Axles all good, but the engine is just at the end of its life, right? Okay. But yep. the body's all good. So, you know, me dropping it off uh, as a gasoline engine at the end of its life today and then picking it up as a ev eight to 12 months down the road fill in the blanks what's from start to finish yep of course so so you roll in tomorrow with your with your jeep you know first thing we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation you know what are you looking for what kind of power are you looking for what kind of range are you looking for what are you going to do with this thing you know tell me a little bit about yourself tell me about your jeep you know what's kind of get to know each other and and have a conversation and figure out, you know, what are you looking for really? Cuz it really all starts with that. You know, there's so many different ways you can do this. There's there's tons of variables, so it's very very specific to the client. So you tell me, you know, I want to use Tesla stuff or I want to use all new components or you know, so we start to figure that out. Okay, you know, this kind of matches your power requirements, you know, about here's how many batteries you might need for range. You know, we, we kind of put together uh, a proposal for you, send it out to you, you look it over, you know, this is great. You know, I'd like to get started. So from there, you know, the first thing we're really going to do is that motor's coming out. Motor, gas tank, fuel lines, anything I don't need. That's it. See you later. Uh, most guys want to keep this stuff. Um, so we usually have a couple pallets set up, so everything will be pulled out, cleaned, washed, hosed off, degreased, you know, stored, boxed up, put on pallets. If, if, you know, like I said, a lot of these guys, they'd want to take this stuff back. They want to keep it, you know, whatever, if you want to throw it out, you know, we throw it out, but you know, most of it's all clean and stored and and put to the side until a customer can pick it up. Um, once we've done that, you know, we really start to do the nitty gritty, you know, measurements, all the math. Okay. 
weight distribution? How do we do this? So when your vehicle first came in that first day, um, we would have done a full initial inspection with you, including weighing your vehicle on all four corners so I can get axle weights and corner weights. So once we get to this point of, of doing the real math here, you know, that comes into play as well. You know, do we want to retain the weight distribution the vehicle had from the factory? Do we want to change that weight distribution for some reason for, you know, for either customer preference or safety or, you know, what have you? Um, you know, once we have a rough idea of, of range, you know, we get a rough idea of battery weight. So we start figuring out where are we going to put the boxes? Where are we going to put the motor? How are we doing this? You know, you want to keep the transmission. You know, in your case, we would keep it all. You know, you want four by four. You want the transfer case. You want a manual trans. Obviously, there are other options. You know, you can go direct drive. You can go transmissionless if you wanted to build like a crawler or something. There are a few options, you know, but for you, we would figure out, okay, we're keeping this transmission. You know, let's see what kind of uprated clutch we can get for it. Um, you don't necessarily have to shift like the way you would in a gas vehicle. You don't really have to use the clutch always. You could stop the vehicle and you could put it in whatever gear you want. You could go. And the only time you'd really use the clutch is if you wanted to change gears on the fly. Um, but we, we generally recommend, you know, uprated clutch because the, the instantaneousness of the torque, you know, so once, once we start to do that, it's, it's kind of the same process all the way down the vehicle, inspecting every component and making sure, is it going to be able to handle the weight or is it going to be able to handle the power or is there some, some concern that needs addressing before, you know, we do all of this, you know, if you bring me uh, a perfectly restored vehicle or a vehicle that's in, in great condition, there's not a ton of work that needs to be done. You know, sometimes, you know, we recommend making sure you got four wheel discs, new shocks and springs, things of that nature. But if it's, if the vehicle's already in great shape, for the most part, you know, we don't have to do a lot. We don't want to be cutting holes in it and drilling and tapping and doing all of that. You know, everything is routed from the factory holes as much as possible. So after we go through the whole vehicle like that, you know, we have a really good idea of, of where we're going to go from there, and we can start to order all the components that we would need. So wait time on average right now for ordering a components is, is four to six months roughly. Um, you know, batteries, controller, motor, screens, you know, all, all the ancillary pieces as well. Um, you can change that lead time depending on what you want to use. You know, if you had said... I don't want my transmission. I don't want my transfer case. Let's do some Tesla stuff. Okay, well, you know, that's a different talk. You know, we can get it in three months, two months. You know, it's, but, you know, it's very, very dependent on on what we're building for you. Okay. So once we've got all that ordered, um, any other enhancements or modifications that need to be done to the vehicle are usually done in that waiting period. You know, we, we take our deposit, we order your system, we get a, everything on the line from our suppliers. And then, you know, like I said, okay, we, maybe we need to do four wheel disc brakes, or maybe we want to, this, you know, maybe you want a bigger lift kit or this or that, or any, anything under that, that's going to be done in that wait period. The goal here is, is at the end of that four to six months of, of waiting that when this stuff comes in, your vehicle is, is totally ready. Whether you brought me something that was fully restored or whether it's something that we we were doing the restoration process on, you know, that that's completed while we're waiting for our components here. So 
once the components come in, then you know we've we've already done all of our measurements, all of our calculation, you know, ninety nine percent of our parts ordering, and, and that's really fitment from there. Um, okay, now we got this motor. You know, we're gonna put it in. We're gonna mock it up. Okay, let's get motor mounts in here. You know, and then any fab work. That's gonna be the first thing that gets done. Um, so components will come in and out of the vehicle three or four times potentially, as far as like mocking up fitment, fab. You know, in and out, finalize until you know all of our brackets usually are sent out for paint or powder coating. You know, so everything will move in and out a few times. But in essence, what we end up doing is is assembling most of the vehicle and then pulling it out and then doing our final touches and dropping it back in. So after rough fitment is all said and done, you know, we're going to polish up all the little pieces, make sure everything's painted, powder coated. You know, nuts and bolts are all matching. You know, I'm I'm kind of a particular guy. So, you know, you come in with your American car and, you know, I have these guys, they send me stuff and it's uh, metric screws here and SAE mm-hmm. here. And, and mm-hmm. I don't fly like that. So you you come in with American car, every piece of hardware is going to be SAE. You That's know, cool. it's all, you know, do we, are we doing gold zinc plated? Are we doing this? You know, it's, it's, it's all very thought out, you know, because this is such an individualized process, you know, we want to build something that, you have a, a hand in some of the designing, if you will, some of uh, in design inputs, you know, choices, things like that. And you know, we're trying to build this this vehicle that fits you specifically. You know, so it's it it takes some takes some time to do it, but you know, at the end of of eight to twelve months, you know, like you said, you're rolling out of here with a beautifully restored car. You got any additional features you may or may not want on the vehicle. You know that. Things like uh, one of the guys, he said, oh, you know, I'd really love to have a uh, an inverter so that way I can use uh, my espresso maker. I want to drive. I want to drive my kids to soccer and I want to sit at the soccer field and I want to plug in my espresso maker. And he's South African, so he, he enjoys cool. he enjoys his espresso. So that was something that we did for him. You know, we built a totally custom center console. Um, we hit an inverter inside of it, USB 110, the whole nine. You know, so it's really it's this very individualized experience of you know you tell me what you want and then we'll figure out how to cross that bridge together. You know, and get you that that end result that that you want. And you know, doing things this way, we can we can change a lot of things. We can edit stuff. You know, we can modify parts of a vehicle that may or may not have been the greatest necessarily, or update any sort of safety issues or things that need to be addressing. You know, because we want to um, future-proof these cars, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of it is is making sure that you know, you can pull out on the road and get on the highway or or drive this vehicle the, the, the way you want it to be driven. You know, a lot of these guys that come, you know, we've mentioned that the air-cooled conversions, you know, the reason they're so popular, you know, they're notoriously unreliable. They didn't have a lot of power, you know, and, and now you're, you're giving a classic design, the updated infrastructure to, you know, to, to go down the road today. I like how you call future proofing. That's pretty That's, cool, man. It's a it's a term we use around the shop here and there. Um, it's really what it's about, you know. I I don't I, I I have nothing against Tesla or any other electric or EV car manufacturers, but I personally I don't want to drive down the road in that. Yeah, 
That's cool, man. That makes two of us. I'm all about EV conversions. I find it so interesting, you know, which is, you know, I'm I'm not sure what this episode is for more myself or the listeners, because I find it that interesting. And with the the EV conversions, obviously, the components are a big piece of it, right? So you have the motor, the control panels or the ECUs or, you know, whatever, you know, they're called in the EV world. And obviously the batteries, those are the three core components of it, right? Yeah, for the most part, those are those are the biggest pieces. You're gonna have uh, a motor of of some sort. You're gonna mm-hmm. have a controller that's responsible mm-hmm. for taking the the power from the batteries and you know supplying it to the motor. So you know the Hyper Nine is a three phase. So basically, that controller is also converting to three phase for the motor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the batteries, like you said, and then usually you have a battery management system as well. Um, so battery management systems are basically controlled via CAN bus the way that any normal modern car ECU works. It's Mm the same, same type of technology, just different programming, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are, those are really your big pieces. Um, depending on situation, you know, you're going to need coolers potentially, um, both for the batteries and especially for the motor and controller The almost always you're going to need a cooler for that. Um, the batteries, it's very dependent on how you set up the system. You know, some cars, they don't charge to a very high rate, so you don't really need cooling for the batteries. But, you know, you get above like 6.6 kilowatts or anything, you know, DC fast charging, anything like that. You know, the batteries are going to require a coolant system as well. But that's really the gist of it. I mean, you know, compared to a, a gasoline car, you're really losing a lot of a lot of systems. Um, no. It's interesting you talk about the cooling. Now, is is that air-cooled? Now, do you set up those as air-cooled systems or liquid-cooled systems? So they're liquid-cooled. Wow. So electric and water, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just opened up Pandora's box. So yeah. explain yes. to us how you air-cool an electric component. Water-cool, yeah, 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 yeah. So like, uh, I'll use uh, that Fiat that I, I built. So it's a 1971 Fiat 500. Um, it has a small Curtis controller and a small Curtis motor in it and has three Tesla batteries, one up front, two in the back. Now, for him, I only gave him 3.3 kilowatt charging. So the only time batteries get hot for the most part is when they're charging. Yeah. So when you're running the vehicle, for the most part, even if your foot's to the floor, you know, the the, the batteries are not going to get hot the same way they do while charging. So that's the big critical component, number one. Um, if you're going to be charging at a fast rate, your batteries are going to get hot. You're going to have to cool them. The motor and controller are a little different. Um, some motors are oil-cooled. Most motors and controllers seem to be liquid-cooled. Motor itself being air-cooled, the controller in particular being liquid-cooled. So with the Fiat, I set them up with plumbing inside the battery boxes. If you were to get batteries from Tesla, they all have two little fittings on them, every single one of them. And that is for not not don't think of coolant as like the way you would think of it for a gas car. Don't think of like 15 PSI of pressure, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of flow rate. It's very low pressure, just a little bit of flow. It's just a circulation, if you will. And you just want that light circulation just to keep moving because, you know, it'll wick heat away from the batteries. But it's not it's not super major like you like you would think it is um you know for him with the with the low charging he he didn't even need it it was just something i plumbed just because now if you were to step up talking about something like our shop truck or the um 
bus that I'm building right now, you know, things are a little different. Our shop truck has two coolant systems in it, one specifically just for the controller. It's on its own loop. Now we're talking, you know, you, you're thinking like, a, you know, normal size radiator, right? I'm talking more like a trans cooler. Oh, okay. So small, it's, you know, 12 small, by small. 12. Yeah. Oh, super yeah. small, super small, you know, small, single small fan, you know, very, very small trans cooler sized units. No big hunking radiators, you know, very, very small single fan 12 volt units. Like you ever see a radiator on a K truck, you know, the, the, yes. the K trucks, like the right hand drive, the Japanese K trucks, like those it's much like more that like size? that, much more oh, okay, like that. Cool. All right. Cause I'm thinking like a big honking no, like, nope. radiator up front with the fan behind it and, you know, a water pump somewhere on the front of this electric engine. You know, <laughs> there is a fan and a water pump, but it's certainly not, um, it's not big the way you would expect in a gasoline car. You know, I use a very small, uh, Bosch electric water pump, just a simple in and out. No big deal. Small, small coolers or very small radiators, depending on the situation, you know, and that takes care of the controller. Now the batteries, like on my truck, it's a totally separate closed loop. You know, you got the coolant for the controller, coolant for batteries. So it's the same kind of setup, single fan, slightly bigger cooler than the other one, you know, more similar to a, a small radiator, um, single water pump once again. And that only goes, you know, I have the, the coolers and everything up front and that only runs to the back to the batteries. Now, that does circulate my coolant at all times. I can turn the pumps on and off on a switch, you know, if it was really cold or whatever, if I had some reason to, I guess. Um, and that that will circulate at all times, but, but the only time it's necessary, like I said, is when we charge. So that truck has 6.6 kilowatt charging on it. So you, you figure it's still going to take, uh, you know, a good portion of the evening to charge it up, but with that level of charging and anything beyond that, you know, we were required to have coolant. So yeah, you, you basically got a stack of batteries inside a billet box with a bunch of little, little coolant tubes running through each of them. I'll be honest. I never expected this conversation to go to cooling. You know, you think about an internal combustion engine, obviously an internal combustion engine needs cooling. It's something we talk about. And, you know, when you talk about, Hey, stripping down the powertrain and getting rid of like non-essential items, like, Obviously, you know, you're going to get rid of the alternator and things like that. I just assumed you also get rid of the cooling system. But I never thought that an electric engine and the components that are associated with it needed cooling. Some of it does. It makes sense. It completely makes sense. That's interesting. Let's talk about the motors. Uh, You know, as we kind of go, there's a lot of options out there. Everything's pretty much component driven now i know know, in in having the conversations i had you know it's all pretty much component driven you don't have though there are a lot of guys working on you know i'll call them crate engine-esque you know ev swaps where you know hey we have a 350 you know we have this box that looks like a 350 a chevy small block 350 that if you had a 350 in there you could just you pull out and put in right everything mates up nobody's really 
at the goal line yet. A lot of people are doing R&D. They're in pre-production. Nobody's really at the goal line yet. Um, we're about a, a couple of years off from there. So everything is pretty much component driven with these. So let's talk about the engine components. There's a couple different options. And you mentioned those earlier. You know, Tesla has one. There was another one that you used. The Hyper 9. The, yep. the Hyper 9. You know, what makes sense, you know, for each application, right? It's very, like you said, it's very application dependent. Um, yeah. You know, we can we can go depending on who we use for motor. I mean, we can go down to you know, you want to power a go kart, or you know, do you want eight hundred foot pounds of torque? Anything and everything in between what I just said is possible. Now, wow. once you divide that selection between used and new, you know, you you got some differences there. Um, primarily used guys right now. It seems to be a little bit more DIY, except for people wanting Tesla power. Uh-huh. Um, but you got Tesla and you got the Nissan Leaf. A lot of guys are taking like Gen 2, Gen 3 Leafs, I believe. Um, you know, salvage cars and pulling them apart and and using those to, to power their conversions. Um, if you want to go new, you know, your options are, are getting bigger. You know, you have companies... Um, that you know, you would recognize names like Borg Warner and stuff like that. They actually have um, clout and space in the in the EV world. They produce motors, Cascadia Motion, and these other guys. You know, they are working with OEMs, and that's where all this stuff is coming from. And that's where you got that range. You know, the Hyper Nine has been a very solid motor for European and small classic car conversions. Um, it'll do about 120 horsepower, 175 foot pounds of torque. Um, and then, like I said, you can go up to, you know, Cascadia Motion and these other guys, you know, you want 300 horsepower, 500, 800, you know, it's, it's, they got something for everybody. So like you had said earlier, when you, you know, if you rolled in my shop with your Jeep, you know, that's one of the conversations we'd be having is, okay, well, what kind of power do you want to make? You know, do you, you want to make 200? Do you want to make 400? You know, what? But like I said, it all comes down to what are you going to do with this vehicle? Um, that, right now we have cool. uh, a Z28 Camaro 1979 that we've been toying with the idea of doing a full restoration and doing a swap on it. Um, now, obviously, 79 Z28 is not going to make a lot of horsepower, but it's still got a decent amount of torque. You know, it's got a 350 in it still. It's a Z28. How do you do it justice? Well, it just so happens that, you know, if, if you can get someone to make an adapter plate, you know, you can throw in a motor that does 350 foot-pounds of torque, 350 horsepower, hook it up to a Tremec 5-speed, and have a nice day, really. I mean, that's cool. It's, it's very customizable. Just like you could take an LS and you could leave it, you know, on stock power, or you could put cams and a tune and, and you know, and nitrous or turbos or whatever you want and go from stock power to a thousand real quick it's kind of the same thing here um obviously you have to put the charging system and batteries in place to support that but you know it's uh pick a number pretty much that's pretty neat so there's a full range so let's kind of like do a an analogy type of exercise with these engines right so what would be my Cummins 12 valve option if I wanted that level of torque and power in the electric world. 
so they have um i can't think of the model number off the top of my head but i was looking at one the other day that does um you know you can do like a kind of like a similar truck style you'll want a higher torque figure and a lower horsepower figure i was looking at one the other day it does about 500 foot pounds of torque and about 300 three and a quarter horsepower um but you know you can step that up with with these teslas and these other things that these guys have you know if you want that that 800 foot pounds of torque i mean you can do it it's certainly there's a number of guys who got skin in the game as far as motors go um i wasn't aware until i went to sema this year of how much these these traditional oems are actually involved in this um but most of them have their names in building these motors or other pieces uh dana spicer you know they're they're all into it. They really are. You, know, you can go to almost any one of them now, and they're specializing in giving you one of these pieces of the puzzle. That's pretty cool. So, what would be like uh, if I wanted like LS, you know, type of power where I need torque, but I want like max horsepower? What's my electric option? My EV engine option there? Let's see. You could do like um, I know there was uh, one of these Revolt systems. I've they're basically taking the Tesla stuff and building it into a brand new, different type of system. It's no longer a transaxle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, oblong-shaped, supposed to fit down the transmission tunnel and into the motor. Mm-hmm. And that'll do, you know, f- torque is a little dependent, but that'll do your 600 horsepower. Um, wow. And then I know there's this other um, IM375, I think it's called. It's a Cascadia Motions motor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll do... I think it's like five and a quarter, maybe 550 horsepower, like four and a quarter horse or four and a quarter uh, foot pounds of torque, you know? So it's, it's, it's pretty dependent. And like I said, they step it. These are some serious numbers too. Oh yeah. No, no, no. They step it down. No joke. What's the weight difference between say like an LS and one of these Cascadia motors? Weight is really a non-issue with EV motors. Um, It is. You know, you can take a lot of these uh, small blocks, big blocks. I mean, you're talking four, five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds, right? Motor and transmission. Um, you know, now you got a motor that weighs two hundred pounds. Gotcha. Wow. It makes that the same or more power. So, so one of the biggest problems people run into with this is they want to. Um, they want to convert one of these V8 cars, you know, a truck, a uh, muscle car, uh, whatever, right? You know, so like we just talked about heavy, heavy transmission, heavy, heavy motor, you know, it's all up front over the front wheels. So, you know, if people were just thinking, just we'll pull the motor out, we'll put the EV motor, we'll put it right in. Well, every vehicle they were doing, they, why the heck is it sitting like this? It's all messed up. It's all, you know, so they started figuring out, hey, we got to throw the batteries back in the front too, because those small blocks and big blocks weighed so much Much. that, you know, if if you want to, if you don't want to mess up the weight distribution, then, you know, these, the electric motor weighs so little compared to it that you're throwing other stuff back in the engine bay just, just to get the weight back. Wow. You brought up something interesting earlier, which is, you know, what's driving electrification is that is more effective, more efficient. But, you know, the green movement is a big part of what's driving electrification. And, you know, the ultimate green move 
would be to recycle these powertrains, right? These EV powertrains. And you brought up, and I never even thought about that, that you have people, there's total losses out there, whatever it is, whatever the, the scenario is, total loss, theft, you know, there are Nissan Leafs, there are Teslas, you know, there are other EVs out there that are going through insurance auctions that are in junkyards. And this stuff has a longer lifespan. These motors, a lot of these components, X the batteries have a much longer lifespan than a internal combustion engine. So these things can be reused and that's a whole nother fold. Have you guys done that or is everything you're, you've done so far all new components? Most of the components that I use are new. It's just simply the way it's it's been. Um, it but on both our shop truck and the Fiat that we did, I did use Tesla battery modules for both of those. So mm-hmm. obviously those came out of a, a used car. Um, they went through a company that specifically takes Teslas and salvages as much as they can. They test the batteries. Mm-hmm. You know, they warranty them for so long. Um, but even the batteries, you know... It, we all know that technology, by the time we get it in our hands, you know, it's essentially obsolete. But these batteries, even if they are obsolete, the the charging cycles on a lot of them are still going to outlast what, what a lot of people use them for. You know, we've done the math a few times on even used Tesla batteries and the amount of charge cycles that they can take. And I mean, for the average person driving a, a classic vehicle and the amount that they're going to be driving it, even though from a technological standpoint, the batteries are long obsolete, they're, they still got life in them too. So the DIY guys are are all over this. You know, uh, Rich Rebuilds made this whole Tesla pulling apart thing extremely popular. He really brought it out into the forefront. And a lot of people said, wow, look at this. I could do that too. He he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just figuring it out as he goes. You know, I can do it. And so now you see tons of guys with the Tesla and the Leaf stuff, you know, getting the salvage vehicles and auction vehicles, um, you know, and putting them in, in different things. You have a source for the parts now. It is technically an OEM quality part. You know, yeah. you, you should be able to get a lot of replacement pieces for, for most of these. You, you can know, get them at the Nissan parts counter. Exactly. Which I never right. even thought of. Right. Yeah, wow. Right. Tesla is a little different, obviously. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of horror stories involved with, uh, you know, people trying to repair salvaged Teslas or, you know, you can't just call up your local Tesla service center and get parts. Parts, but, yeah. But things like Nissan and some of these other companies, I mean, they built so many of those vehicles and they have to retain parts for them for so many years. So, you know, I could reasonably assume that, you know, on some of these pieces of motors and other equipment that you're you're salvaging that, yeah, you can still get, you know, pieces you would need to service this stuff as well. So... It's a big option. It's a big DIY option. Um, in our space, the big thing is Tesla, as far as used stuff goes. Um, yeah. People, you know, some people they just want, you know, they think of a Tesla Plaid or whatever, and they just say, "Make me that," but you know, in insert car here. It is. Um, you know, so there's there's certain situations, but even the the Tesla stuff now, you know, people have figured out the limitations of of their battery designs and how to use other batteries now to power Tesla motors and other things. So it's, uh, you know, it's technology. It's kind of like Legos, you know, every day someone's figuring out some other path or some other way of getting something accomplished. And, you know, who knows what someone might figure out tomorrow. 
Cool. Let's talk about batteries. One of the, the conversation that comes up all the time with EVs is range anxiety, right? Yes. Which we all know is overblown, right? Unless you're a, you know, you're a delivery van or you're on the road all day long, nine times out of 10, you're driving 20 or 30 miles at most to work. I mean, in this post COVID era, most people work from home anyway, right? 20, yep. 30 miles each way, you know, and you're charging overnight. So at most you're 40 to 60 or, Hey, maybe you run some errands after work. You might go 80, a hundred miles, right? At most in a day, right? But people have range anxiety, you know, oh, I need that 450 miles, right? In reality, nobody's really using it, but everybody, you know, wants to have that peace of mind. With a classic vehicle owner, we don't really have too much range anxiety because we don't need, like, I'll use myself as an example. I have my garage full of classic four by fours and, you know, am I driving them every day? No. Am I going to the garage to look at them and put a little smile on my face every day. Yes, right. But of course, am I driving them every day? And when I do take them out of the garage, again, mostly in the summer, not really in the winter too much. When I do take them out of the garage, I'm taking them to out to dinner or just using it to putz around on the weekends. Like, again, maybe in a given day, I might do 20, 30 miles. Right. I'm not going long range. I will say my wife and I, we will take them up to the city every once in a while for dinner, which is fun. There's nothing, there's nothing cooler than driving a classic, you know, up into the city. But again, we're talking 45 miles each way, 90 miles tops. Right. Yeah. So what are the, the expectations for these EV conversions on? Obviously, the batteries play a huge variable into it. What are the expectations and what are you delivering for range in these uh, EV conversions classics? Well, most people's expectations are, are, you know, how do I get the same amount of, of mileage that my gasoline car gets? And <laughs> like you just said, you know, you're driving a classic car. Where the heck are you going? You know, so that's the that's usually the first step of the conversation is they say, well, mm-hmm. I want 500 horsepower and 300 miles of range. And then I have to ask them, well, where are you going? You know, <laughs> yeah. and then they say, well, you know, I'm just I'm just putting around town. And I'm like, OK, well, you don't need that. You know, right now, here's the big thing. Batteries are the most expensive part of the conversion, hands down. Mm-hmm. They are also the heaviest part of the conversion. So the name of the game here is to get to the the voltage and pack capacity that is required to run your system and get you the mileage that you want without just going crazy. You know, um, an old uh, Tesla 5.3 module weighs like 50 pounds or 55 pounds a piece or something. You're talking a Tesla's got 16 of those, you know, in that skateboard underneath the car. So, you know, where am I putting 800 pounds of battery in your car? It's it's not always going to work. Some vehicles, I can find a place and I can put the batteries and it's not a big deal. Um, you know, but a lot of them, it's you're not going to have the spot for it. You don't want to put that much weight. So it's it really just it's a hard question on the owner. How far do you okay. really want to go? Um, I would say most people on average are getting like. One to two hundred mile range, I would say, is is pretty fair. Um, it all depends on vehicle, 
aerodynamics, how many batteries. You know, there's a lot that plays into it. Our shop truck has five Tesla 5.3 modules in it. And I would say in the summer when the batteries are happy in the warm temperature, you know, you could go a good 80 or 90 miles with it. Um, you know, living up here where it's cold, you know, it really kills the the range in the winter, unfortunately. Um, there are ways to mitigate that. You know, we talked about the cooling system earlier. You know, you could add a heat pump into that cooling system, um, mm-hmm. to warm your batteries, which, you know, will, will help that pack sagging that happens in the winter. But yeah, I would say most, most people, you know, you're talking, you know, we could go down as low as like 50, 60 miles. Um, but yeah, you know, 50 miles all the way up to maybe 200 is, it's on average what you're going to get. So the sweet spot's 100 to 200 miles on, yeah. on these, yeah. covers, which is, I don't know anybody who would really be using more, including myself. I couldn't even see myself using more than 100 miles, 200 miles a day. Like, you know, no, even if we no did way. go to the city for dinner, right? And it's 45 miles each way. Obviously, there's charging infrastructure up there. So, Correct. you know, it's, I couldn't even see other than just putting around town, maybe 50 miles. So yeah. it, it's interesting yes. how, the differentiation between for range anxiety, when you have that conversation with the customer where what they want and what reality is when people kind of open their eyes, they're like, wow, I would really ever need four or 500 miles. Right. You know? Yes. Yes. You know, I know we're, we're all used to it. Obviously, you know, you go to the pump, you, you slide your card in there, you stand there for a couple of minutes and, you know, and then you're on your merry way. You click the little button, it says 400 miles to empty, you know, and have a nice week. Right. You know, and that's what we're used to. And I understand that. But, you know, in in, in the aspect of it being a classic car that you're like you said, you're not driving it every day, you're not driving it far. I mean, it just really becomes pretty much a non-issue for the most part. You know, there are are certain use cases where I could see, you know, oh, well, you know, I go on this specific, you know, cruise every year with my car club or we always take this car on this specific vacation or whatever. But yeah, for the most part, man, you're running around town. You know, you're doing a couple errands, you're going to dinner, you take the grandkids to get ice cream, you know, and and then you put it away for the day and and you charge it. And, you know, just as easily, you know, you can stop somewhere, you plug it in, have some dinner, get a cup of coffee, whatever, grab 10, 15, 20 percent, keep on going, then go home if you have to, too. You know, it's it's not. I understand it. Um, You know, when we first built the truck, we were very unsure of its, you know, theoretical mileage was one thing. But once you go Mm -hmm. to try to test that, you know, you're like, oh, man, I drove 50 miles out. Like, am I going to be able to get back now? Like, this is just really pushing it. But, you know, we found out very quickly that, you know, for the most part, we we had no reason to be worried about getting stuck at all. That's interesting. Now, this also brings up with classic trucks and these classic EV conversions is these, you know, many of us out there have collections where we have multiple vehicles. So eventually down the line, somebody might have multiple EVs, right? Within their classic truck or car collection that's not being used every day. How do you preserve the batteries? Now, are you plugging it in? You know, so say there's two weeks in between uses, right? Are you keeping it plugged in for those two weeks or are you just getting it? How does the battery management software work? You know, do you have to go physically pull it out or will the battery management system just stop taking juice out of the charger? Like, how does that all work? How does that process work? All right. I'll, uh, I'll use a shop truck as an example. Um, mm-hmm. So the way that's set up, 
you know, you can drive it, go run errands, whatever, drive it into the shop, and it'll charge off either 110 or 220. It is a mm-hmm. level two charging capable. That's what we use, level two charging cord. Um, so because I do a lot of welding and fabrication, TIG welding and, and stuff like that, I have a, a dedicated breakout for 220. So most Good. of the time we use the 220. Um, you know, we get our 6.6 kilowatt charging and the battery management system will automatically turn off charging when it reaches a specific point. Gotcha. So you don't have to unplug it or anything. So these things can stay plugged into the wall for weeks on end and the battery management system will take care of everything from there. Yeah. Yeah. If if for some reason you had some event where it discharged dramatically, um, I'm sure it would pick back up on the charging. But I got to say, I've really had no issues with that. The biggest issue is just the 12 volt system. Um, So with the 12 volt battery, I have a specific little device that's wired in line on the positive side that after the battery gets below at or below, I believe it's 12.2 volts. Um, It basically internally, you know, a little circuit board in there severs the connection from the battery to everything else going out. So, you know, I park the truck for two weeks or whatever, you know, everybody goes on vacation or something, right? We come back in, you get in, it looks like it's dead. The screens aren't lit up, you know, you put the key in, it doesn't do anything. All I got to do is tap a little button that's right under my seat, just the way that any of us would have a kill switch, you know, or a, a fuel a fuel hidden cutoff, you know, an anti-theft switch in any of our cars. It's the same thing. You just reach under the seat, just give it a little tap. Battery comes to life, turns on. You still got 12 volts in your 12-volt house battery. You turn your key, you're good to go, man. You actually bring up a good point. I never really thought about this because all the other ancillary systems in these classic vehicles are run off a 12-volt. You know, the gauges, the lighting, the radio, all that stuff. You're not feeding that out of the EV battery pack. You're feeding that out of just a regular 12-volt, like an Optima, right? You can uh, you could use capacitors if for some reason you didn't want to have a 12-volt house battery. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's primarily this is how everything is designed. So instead of an alternator, you have a DC to DC converter. And one of the things that does is take your, your pack battery, whatever that voltage may be, and step it down to a reasonable number for a battery. So, you know, with our system on, you get about 13 and a, 13.7, I would say, 13.8, you know, yep. about alternator charging voltage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that while the system is running, you know, that's powering everything. It's putting, you know, a little current back into the house battery. Um, now, as long as the house battery doesn't get below that cutoff voltage, you know, it's just like getting in your normal car. You know, you open the door, the screens are on, you stick the key in, you turn it, you flip the switch, you go. Um, but then, like I said, you know, if you let the vehicle sit, then, you know, the saver there will keep that house battery from being because that's the big key. You know, you have depending on how you build your system, you know, you could have four five, six, seven hundred volts right in that yeah. pack. Well, you've got to be able to turn it on somehow. So you need 12 volts to start stepping up and opening up the contactors and everything else to get that battery voltage to flow into your system. So, you know, whether it's with a, you know, a battery or some other method, you know, you got to have that 12 volts. So it's just, it's just the easiest way to do is just, you use that DC to DC converter, just like an alternator, you put a cutoff switch in, you know, you could get a, you could get an old school turn style cutoff switch. Like you'd have on a muscle car or anything. If you really wanted, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be fancy, 
but that's really the only problem I've run into is that 12 volt battery being, you know, potentially sitting for weeks or months and getting worn down just like any other battery. But, Interesting. You know? but So when you're wiring up an accessory like a stereo or like I like to go fish on the beach in Island Beach, Island Beach State Park in New Jersey. And a lot of time we fish, we surf fish at night. So I just installed rock lights, uh, the Rough Country rock lights, the LED lo- rock lights underneath my CJ7. So the one I'm out there and it's in the middle of the night, I can just turn them on and everything kind of, you know, lights up around me underneath the truck. So when you're installing, say, rock lights, right, yep. you're just doing it as you normally would, you know, putting the relay on the firewall, putting the the positive to the battery, the, the house battery point or the 12 volt battery point and, and grounding it out to the, the body of the car. Right. Yep. Yeah. There's, you know, there's like Throwing two ways inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's two ways you could do it. I mean, you could be super simple like that. You know, you could just add it into the system or, you know, some of these vehicles I've retained the original wiring harness. So you find a way to work it in. Um, or some of these, you know, you can order uh, American Auto Wire or any of these companies, painless, you know, you can order new harnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, so the other way to do it is if you're already in the process of building it, it's just to build it right in. Gotcha. Yeah, grab, that's, uh... grab power from a fuse circuit that's a blank circuit, label it, and then put your switch, put your relay, mount your lights, do it. It's all the 12 volt is the same as it's always been. You're just either hooking up right back to the battery like normal or to that DC to DC as you're or the fuse box, you know, but it's, it's all exactly the same as, as, you know, building any of your other cars. That is super interesting. So as we kind of wrap up here, let's talk about timelines and price. Obviously, uh, these conversions aren't inexpensive, right? But we've already instilled the value on what goes into these conversions, which is an immense amount of work. Yes. Timeline on average, and, and you actually already kind of gave us a good timeline on, hey, it's four to six months for waiting for components, but you're doing a lot of work in that period of time. So from the day I drop off that 81 CJ7 with the the worn out you know, internal combustion engine to the day I pick it up as an EV powered you know, classic four wheel drive. What's usually the range? Obviously not going to hold you to it, you know, on the timeline. Um, so biggest problem is component availability. You know, mm-hmm. if I call my guys and they say, yeah, we got it all. We can get it to you in two weeks. Well, you know, you might be talking three months, four months, start to finish. Um, the biggest problem right now is when I call my guys, they say, well, we'll get you this in a month and this in four months and this in five Uh months and this in two months. And, you know, because it's component based, you know, you're at the mercy of all these different suppliers and and when people are getting stuff in. And, you know, unfortunately, ever since COVID, we've really struggled. Just the, the supply chain has been horrible. So I would say on average, you know, if you had come in, you know, we picked out a system for you, you're probably waiting four to six months for the components to show up. And then from there, you know, as long as we've done our job and done our homework, you know, like we've talked about, everything else is already done. As components come in, if they trickle in early, if we got time, we start fitting things, mocking things up, planning out. So you figure you wait four to six months for the components and maybe another three months, four months to get the build finished. And that's, you know, it's going to take eight months, maybe a year, depending on, you know, parts availability is a huge issue right now. So. So eight to 12 months is realistic, though, if you think about if you were doing a full restoration, a full restoration on a classic vehicle where you're rebuilding every component of the powertrain, you're putting a new wiring harness in, you're stripping out all the interior, in some cases doing a frame off or you're doing a frame on. 
that's an eight to 12 month horizon anyway. So it's actually not far off of a normal restoration. No, right? No, it's really not. Um, Because we still do a lot of restoration work, I would say on average, most of the full restorations that we do are, are taking roughly the same amount of time. And the ones that I have that we've started are projected to take about that same amount of time as well. So you're really absolutely correct. I mean, you know, to to think that eight to twelve months is you know it's fairly common in this industry, whether you're going with batteries or whether you want LS. So here's the million dollar question, which is cost wise, right? And again, obviously not going to hold you to anything. Obviously, there's a lot of variables. You build these EV powertrains and these conversions; they're all bespoke based on what the customer wants, right? On average, what's the sign sealed delivered? You know, I guess price range usually. You know, if you're talking something, especially if we're talking like V8 power, I would let mm-hmm. me put that in there. You know, uh, muscle car, classic four by four, things of that nature. You know, you're going to start that at, at at least 50,000. I mean, that's going to be the the bottom line starting number. It's only going to go up from there. There are outliers. There are other things you can do. You know, say you don't want to use all new components. Maybe you want to go with Tesla or maybe, you know, there are, are numbers below that 50,000 mark. But the primary people that come in looking for my services, you know, they want, like you said, a bespoke vehicle that fits them, brand new components, brand new batteries, brand new everything, you know, and and it really, it starts at 50 and it just goes up from there. Which actually, if you think about it, obviously you would always assume an EV conversion is going to have a premium associated with it. And as time goes on, the technology will get cheaper like anything, right? But it's not that far off. Like, let's use an LS conversion as an example, right? You have to get the crate, right? And then you have the wiring harness. You have, and obviously, if you're doing an LS swap, right? You're doing an LS swap. You're obviously going to rebuild every other aspect of the powertrain or re- replace it. You're not just going to drop an LS in with, you know, a midweight trans that has, you know, 150,000 miles on it. You're going to do a full rebuild on the trans, the transfer case. You're going to get new drive shafts. You're going to rebuild the axles from start to finish. I mean, that could be on just a normal LS swap from start to finish. You could be not far off 30 grand right there. Yes. So yeah, the, the differential and the premium you're paying is not as much as I thought it would be. Number one, that delta is only going to get smaller as time goes on, as the technology gets advances and gets cheaper. Yes. The biggest hurdle is batteries. You know, you can you can pick up uh, a motor and controller, you know, for a few thousand dollars to up to maybe Tesla. You know, you stuff's going for like eight, ten perhaps right now. Um, you know, it's really the batteries that are, are the big budget killer right now. And like you said, you know, as technology increases, the thing we're all waiting for in this space is batteries to become cheaper and smaller. Once that, that uh, happens, it's going to be a, a a big, big game changer. We're eventually going to see an inverse relationship where the EV at some point in time, the EV conversion is actually going to be less expensive than the internal combustion. Swap. It's entirely possible. Yes. I mean, yeah, with, I mean, you know, with the way things are going, you know, like I said, you know, you're talking motor for motor, you know, a built LS motor versus, you know, a semi-capable EV electric motor of some sort, you're already in the same ballpark pretty much. So it's just the batteries that are the big variable from a, I guess, a a budget standpoint. Right. But, you know, there are those guys chasing power and and building these motors that cost 
twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars, you know, just just you know, a thousand horsepower, you know, nitrous drag car or whatever. And you know, once you start chasing that kind of power, um, and you're you're already getting to those figures, I think the difference actually becomes even even less of a you know a factor to talk about. Really, you know, you want to dump a hundred grand in a car and make you know, five or 600 horsepower and have a fully capable vehicle, you know, you're, you're pretty much right there, no matter which way you slice it. I can't wait till you get to go to the drag strip or the racetrack one day and, and you don't hear the rumble. All you hear is the. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot. <laughs> um, and then where I live too, we have a, uh, we have a local track that's uh, I would say it's maybe like 20, 25 minutes from my house. And as the years have gone on, you know, more and more days are becoming restricted track days now. And every year, the sound limits for the decibels just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. You know, one of the things I I do when we have spare time to fill is I still do a lot of uh, uh, custom exhaust work, pipe bending and fabrication. You know, we talk to a lot of race car guys and... You know, this sound decibel thing is is really, really killing a lot of people, too, because, you know, people are complaining about the volumes at the track. So we're sitting here going, well, don't you think we should build something, something to bring to the track or something, you know, put a Tesla in something and go to the drag strip or something, you know, just to just to show everybody, you know, it's listen, I got plenty of cars here. I, I don't have any immediate plans to convert any of my own cars, but. There's something to be said about it. And when you drive something like this for the first time, you know, and there's no torque curve, there's no 5250 horsepower torque crossover anymore. I mean, it's pretty much just linear, straight shot. You know, you want, you got 800 foot pounds on tap, you got it at one RPM. Wow. All the way. You know, it's, that's it's amazing. Um, yes, it's very, very different to a traditional power curve, you know, and, and coming from where I came from, I was very, very blown away by how even a small motor making, you know, 100, 200 horsepower could could make me feel the way it does. Like It's just, it's, just, it's not, you know, you get in a, a gas car with 175 horsepower and you're like, oh, this thing's slow, you know, zero to 60 in 10 seconds, you know? <laughs> But, you know, you feel the same power differently in a different sort of fashion. And it's, it's kind of a, it's an eye opener. That's pretty cool, man. I've driven a couple EVs and been nothing but impressed. And but I will tell you, as that as that Delta and that margin and that premium starts to get closer and closer, I, I that will be my next conversion or, or swap will definitely be an EV. So, Nate, man, I really can't thank you enough for joining us today uh, on the Classic 4x4 podcast. For all of our listeners out there, you got to follow uh, Proper EV on all the social channels. Uh, check out their website, Proper Solutions Group. And if you're in the Northeast, in the New Milford, Connecticut area, and you're interested in converting your classic or any vehicle in general to an EV, make sure you stop by uh, the Proper EV shop. So Nate, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate your time today. And, and I learned a lot, to say the least. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. It was such great to have a conversation with somebody. You know, a lot of these people that we talk to, they either love it or they hate it. Um, And I really like to see these people who are into it. You know, it it makes me really happy to know that not everybody hates it because it really is an option for a lot of people. And it may be one of the only ways we're going to be able to keep these beautiful vehicles on the road. 
hey, sometimes people don't like change, but you got to embrace the technology and, and understand that no matter how you slice or dice it, it's the future and it's how we're all going to be driving behind the wheel, you know, believe it or not, probably within the next decade. Yeah, so I agree. Next 10, 20 years is going to be a big shift for this industry. Definitely. So, hey, Neat, thanks a lot, man. Have a great day. Be well. And I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. When innovation meets profit and intersects with production and economies of scale, absolutely amazing things happen. And that's the history we're living right now and experiencing with electric vehicles. I will tell you, this is a topic we will be discussing more in the future, hands down, no question. But before we do, stay tuned for our next and final episode of the season, where we flip the script and Brian Ellis from 4B Exchange joins as the host of the show and uh, interviews yours truly.